Hi, and welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, where we explore the unexplained. Our topics include missing persons, UFO and aerial phenomenon, unsolved murders, lost treasures, cryptozoology, urban legends, conspiracies, ancient archaeological anomalies, and much more. If this is your first time listening to us and you like our show, remember to subscribe when you get a chance. Each episode, we will dive into a topic or case with an in-depth narrative and include special guest interviews where possible. In this episode, we will speak to Dr. Christopher Larson about his knowledge and research into the poltergeist phenomenon. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 1, Episode 4, Part 2. So can you give us a quick background about yourself and how and why you got interested in your studies? Well, I actually have a background in journalism. And uh, when I was a journalist, I always felt like I wanted to tell stories that were going a bit deeper. And that led me to study history. And uh, at some point I decided, um, hey, you know what, I'm deeply interested in paranormal topics and experiences and I started searching to see if there were scholars who were actually studying it in the field I was studying history and at that time in the the early to mid 2000s there there weren't as many but uh, since then many many more have emerged so it's become uh, almost a, a new way of scholarship there are more scholars who are studying paranormal experiences and uh, I pursued a PhD at the University of British Columbia uh, and wrote a dissertation on uh, the poltergeist specifically a new idea that emerged at the beginning of the 20th century about the poltergeist being uh, more of a psychological type phenomenon uh, which we can talk more about but in, in general I've been very interested in how anomalous physical phenomena impacts how people see and experience and understand the world and I I kind of think of it as physical dash metaphysical there's some sort of a physical event that people experience but it impacts their intellectual and spiritual lives so that's sort of the trajectory of how I ended up in my studies sure and what brought you to uh, going after the poltergeist I guess phenomenon more so than say UFOs or ghosts and hauntings or any other phenomena? I think that uh, the poltergeist has always intrigued me so much because it's such a physical type of event that many people can witness at once and no matter what type of argument people come up with uh, or what type of explanation what's always left behind is that some strange physical events have happened so In that sense, it's quite different than if somebody is claiming to contact a spirit of the dead um, or if someone has a dream that that tells something that will happen in the future uh, or seeing an apparition. It it becomes an event where strange things are occurring to your very household objects, (laughs) you know, and it's uh, to me that's really intriguing. It, It drew me into studying this as almost an environmental phenomenon that nobody has been able to explain in, the, in a satisfying way yet. So I thought um, it would be really cool to sort of treat this as uh, unexplained environmental phenomenon first and then see where it goes from there. Have you ever experienced this phenomenon yourself? 
I haven't experienced uh, poltergeist events. I, I haven't exactly sought them out either personally, although I've interviewed many people who have. Uh, so that, that was my approach to it. Um, not only looking at the historical records, of which there are surprisingly a lot. For example, at Cambridge University, you can find well over 500 poltergeist case files uh, from the Society for Psychical Research in England. Um, so I haven't experienced uh, objects moving strangely in a way that I would say it's a poltergeist. Um, but I've had other unusual experiences that I think have given me a pretty open mind to people ex experiencing anomalous or extraordinary things. And historically and culturally, has this phenomenon changed over the years? Yeah, it really has. <laughs> I mean, it's it's actually, you know, depending on what part of the world you're in, uh, the poltergeist will have a different interpretation. So historically, we can see that too. So I'll talk a bit about both the historical and the cultural. If you go back to, to ancient times and early Christianity, when poltergeist-type events were first recorded and documented, uh, generally people explain them in the same way they would explain apparitions, and that was that they were restless spirits of the dead. And in fact, a lot of poltergeist-type events, especially things like stone throwing, so stones are mysteriously flying, and that still today is very commonly reported around the world, um, people would say, well, it's a spirit of the dead who didn't receive a proper burial, and we have to rectify that. So these old documents have these very elaborate stories and narratives about um, restless spirits of the dead and having long conversations, finding out who they were and why they weren't properly buried. And so there, there was a very common explanation up until uh, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, when Martin Luther himself actually experienced poltergeist-type events and used that word, die poltergeister, in his... Uh, his 1522 book called The Misuses of the Mass. And the thing about Martin Luther, because he was a Christian reformer, he wanted to counter a lot of aspects of Catholicism that he felt were, were moving away from a pure worship of, of Jesus Christ. So he had a, a very simple idea. If, if it's not of God, it must be of the devil. And that certainly included the poltergeist. When objects were moving around, he said, it's the devil uh, at, in, at work. And he used it in many ways as a religious and political tool uh, because he said that the poltergeist, believe it or not, was the fifth worst um, worst thing in the Catholic Church, it's the fifth worst thing that Catholics did, is they would pray to poltergeists because they thought they were purgatorial spirits. And to him, he said, no, you're not praying to, a to spirits, you're praying to the devil if you do that. So he was using it really as a political tool to change how people viewed the poltergeist. And that's that idea that the poltergeist is diabolic or demonic still runs very strong among many Christians. They feel that this can't be holy. It has to be something evil. There's a, there's a strong cultural idea in the West that the poltergeist is evil. Just to contrast it, John, really briefly, if you were to go to the Islamic world, um, you would find a very different interpretation of poltergeist today that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
and that is that the poltergeist is jinn and in in the english world we know them as genies sort of you know the tale of aladdin and the genie that type of character very mischievous elusive and in the quran jinn are seen as being of allah they're they're part of allah's creations and they're beings who live between heaven and earth so when uh people in the islamic world generally encounter the poltergeist they attribute them to being jinn and they do seek clerics to come in and and try and clear the jinn to 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 stop the events from occurring so they go through a similar process of trying to clear the jinn from their home but um they're not seen as sort of this evil being that they might be seen in a more uh protestant tradition and again historically there's a turn away from it being of the devil more to a spirit of the dead again around the victorian times when spiritualism was popular and then when in the late 19th century psychical research uh began to study psychical phenomena so telepathy and clairvoyance ghost seeing and poltergeists they started to turn the attention to how might these things be related to human psychology how might there be powers of mind involved or psychokinesis involved in the making of poltergeist phenomena so that gives you a sort of a, a you know a pretty bird's eye view of some of the historical differences and cultural differences that have occurred in interpreting uh physical phenomena that themselves have remained fairly similar uh in terms of there are moving objects there are strange noises that occur there are spontaneous fires and they tend to be events that are short lived they live, they last 6 weeks or 2 months or so on average and in pop culture just going on that um evil presence type of thing mm-hmm. uh in both print television and certainly in film it's always portrayed as a negative experience is there any positive outcomes to having such an experience have you encountered anybody who says you know this was a good thing in my life and it changed something spectacular in my life to put me in a different direction. Yeah, it's that very question that I've been curious about and I started to pursue that with my PhD dissertation because I found that there were a minority of cases in which people um had outcomes that were atypical. So, you know, to understand that first you have to understand that in a typical poltergeist case people you know are surprised clearly that things start to move around in their homes or they're hearing strange knocking noises or rapping noises um and they they don't seem to have any sort of explanation so when those things are occurring um they're quite surprised by them and they're seeking explanations and of course when objects are moving or flying across the room or even smashing and breaking a lot of people are frightened and they want them to stop so they seek ways to stop what's going on so i mean that's the typical poltergeist case and then the events tend to just uh stop as mysteriously as they began a month or two later so in atypical poltergeist cases the the major thing i noticed was that they went on far longer than just a couple of months they could go on for years um and so I was curious about that and what kind of outcomes there were and they tended to be you know even though the events could still surprise and even frighten the experiencers uh they tended to be more curious about them 
Uh, they wanted to explore what was going on, and the outcome of that tended to sort of help them not only maybe understand what was going on in their home, but understand something about who they were as people. And certainly I have many examples of that that we can talk further on. But just to go back to your your point about the negative experience that's so commonly portrayed in the media, in television and in movies and books. I mean, in many ways, that's a sensational factor. And I mean, poltergeists are certainly sensational in that people sense them in heightened ways. Um, but they're not nearly as extreme as they're depicted in, in movies. Um, they're, they're pretty mundane. Poltergeist activities are fairly mundane compared to the extreme sort of events you see on the big screen. So, you know, that, that's more to draw people in. People like to watch scary movies, and the poltergeist has commonly been associated with paranormal events, and, you know, the whole horror genre, a large part of it is based on frightening paranormal events. So that's, you know, the real experience of a poltergeist is generally a lot different than it's depicted in most movies and TV shows. Sure, and you recently concluded a speaking engagement at the University of Alberta about communicating with the poltergeist phenomenon. Can you explain why some people would want to communicate or how they may communicate? And what are some of the outcomes of like a successful interaction? Mm-hmm. And, and that really ties in very well to sort of the positive outcomes that I saw in some poltergeist cases, because those cases all feature communication. So people... Uh, often quite spontaneously uh, felt compelled to try and communicate with what was going on. So they, I mean, when people experience poltergeist events, they often feel that there's something more than just randomness going on. There's almost, uh, to them, they feel that there's an intelligence behind the physical manifestations they're experiencing. So for some people, they feel compelled to try and communicate uh, in the Shirley Hitchings case, and there's a book based on, or that's about her case. It's called The Poltergeist Prince of London, and she co-wrote um, the book with James Clark. Uh, she really details that process of coming to uh, communicating with these tapping noises that she and her family were hearing amidst various moving objects that they were also experiencing. And it was actually a journalist who suggested that the family try and communicate with the tapping noises and um, just using a very simple, I believe it was two taps for yes, uh, one tap for no system of questions and answers. And as soon as they did that, they would receive that sort of intelligible yes, no dialogue with the source, the apparent source of the poltergeist. And as the case went on, this is in the 1950s in England, as the case went on, more elaborate forms of communication were devised. So they um, wanted to learn more about who this, who you know, they thought it might be a spirit involved. So they wanted to find out who this individual was, this discarnate individual. And they had the taps count out the letters of the alphabet, which I, you can imagine was a very tedious process. <laughs> they, you know, one, two, three, C... And then, you know, you'd have all the way up to Z. Counting that out was highly tedious. So they came up with the idea of just having the letters of the alphabet written on a board. And they would point to the letters and then the tap would sound once their finger reached the appropriate letter, which 
um, made it made it a much more efficient process to communicate. And indeed, they started to transcribe out these communications, and uh, personality um, began to come to light through those communications. And it was highly extraordinary. The reason the book is called The Poltergeist Prince of London is because this personality claimed to be a French prince. Um, in fact, the very last French prince who was in line for the throne at the time of the French Revolution in the late 18th century. Uh, so it was a very extraordinary claim, <laughs> you know, that this spirit in Battersea, you know, a suburb of London, um, saw itself as being uh, royalty. And it, it was a really extraordinary claim. And the investigator, Hal Chibbett, he was kind of a, a investigator in the tradition of Charles Fort, who was all about um, investigating all sorts of strange phenomena and treating them as something worthy of study. So Hal Chibbett uh, would ask questions of this personality, which went by the name Donald, by the way. <laughs> and uh, it, you know, it would answer according to this life of a prince, and he would try and correlate uh, specific claims made by this personality to historical facts. So he would, really went through a process and came up with some very intriguing evidence that to this day is still being investigated in terms of what the personality was claiming. So in that case, it actually it went on for 12 years, which is a, in itself highly unusual in the poltergeist literature. And I, th I think it was within a year that spontaneous notes would appear around the house, sometimes written on paper, sometimes on the walls of the house that would continue the communication. So it, it evolved from tapping communications to written notes, uh, which is something rarely found, but it is found in other historic poltergeist cases. So that gives you a, an idea, just a, a, an example of what occurs when people start to communicate with the apparent source of the poltergeist manifestations. And a very fruitful dialogue can occur, a very informative one. And those were the kinds of cases I was intrigued by and found that there's something about those cases. I, I'm not out to explain what a poltergeist is, but I'm very intrigued by how people have tried to approach the physical phenomenon and what brought forth unusual results that maybe help us understand the nature of the poltergeist more. And it seems that these cases involving communication are very, you know, enlightening. Uh, whatever might really be going on, there's something that goes beyond the typical parameters of a poltergeist case. It, goes, it lasts years, and, and the types of interactions that occur sort of evolve the situation. They evolve um, not only the phenomenon, but the people who are involved find themselves very enlightened and quite often even more confused <laughs> by what's going on. Now, if we look at the people that have been involved, is, is there a composite sketch of, like, who these people are? Do they all come from the same, or is there an age range that they, they typically fall into, or do they come from a, a certain background? It's a great question, because uh, researchers who would compare poltergeist cases, and certainly I find this looking at the archives as well, found that quite often adolescents uh, were involved in these cases, uh, anywhere from 
sort of a pre-adolescent age, 10 to early 20s. And of course, adolescence itself could, depending on the individual, could occur anytime in that age range. So that's a, it's a fascinating factor. I mean, the majority of poltergeist cases do involve teenagers, essentially. And it is very much 50-50 male and female. Uh, popular culture has made it out to be more uh, girls involved, and that largely is because of Stephen King's novel Carrie, and also because there are a lot of older Victorian ideas about girls being predominant in poltergeist cases. But when you look at the historic cases, it's 50-50, and the parapsychologist William Roll also found that in his uh, comparative studies of the poltergeist. You, it, there's also, uh, you know, I would say socioeconomic similarities are also present in that a lot of poltergeist cases that I see reported occur with working class or blue collar families, um, families that have been disrupted in some way. They might not have a traditional family structure. For example, they have single parents or there's been a recent divorce or there's some sort of turmoil, um, foster children. Uh, can be commonly involved. There are many cases involving children move from their families to another family or another part of their family, like grandparents. So there's there's often this sort of disruption that commonly seems to precede the poltergeist events. And um, the people who tend... So the par parapsychology essentially came up with an idea that there's something about a person who appears to be at the center of the poltergeist events. They would be called a poltergeist agent or a focus person. In older literature, they're referred to as mediums or poltergeist mediums because, in a sense, they're very similar to mediums uh, in seance circles. They're at the center of the phenomena. So, you know, that the idea of a focus person... Um, it also seems to depend on sort of these interpersonal dynamics. So the poltergeist tends to not occur outside of the person's home, for example. So there's something about the interpersonal dynamics going on in that home that seem to relate to these physical events occurring. Uh, they don't necessarily occur outside of the home, though sometimes they do. Um, there are cases in which they occur in the focus person's school or in their workplace as well as their home. So there are always exceptions. Now, so that, take... that's kind of the profile. <laughs> that's kind of the profile. So if we take the, the focus person out of it, has there ever been mm -hmm. a case where, say, someone was experiencing the, the poltergeist phenomenon, they left the house, but the activity still occurred? Generally, uh, it happens when the full focus person is present. So it, it's almost, uh, it's very rare that occurs when the focus person is absent from the location where these events are happening. Okay. It, it does happen, though, that people report it. Now, it's just most common when a focus person is around, and that's what's led to that parapsychological idea. And what research is being done currently on the, the poltergeist phenomenon and what needs to be changed to, to make more progress? Hmm. There's uh, some very interesting research, but it's not nearly as active as the historical period that I focused on, which was the late 19th century into the 1980s. And 
you know, it's parapsychology certainly was a major field that studied the poltergeist into the 1980s. And a large part of that is because of the researcher William Roll, who wrote uh, a book in the 1970s called The Poltergeist. And it still is a major volume on the phenomenon that's well worth looking at. And uh, uh, William Roll passed away in 2012. He very much researched the poltergeist up to that time. In Germany, there's uh, quite active research, uh, but much the thing that's different about poltergeist research nowadays, the most fascinating poltergeist research, tends to focus on those individuals at the center of the cases, as well as the dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics they have with those people who are around them. So in Germany, since 1950, uh, there's an institute in Freiburg, Germany, that was founded by Hans Bender, a very major parapsychologist. And it continues on, and they actually have a counseling program there that's state-funded, and it's designed to help people who are having these anomalous or extraordinary uh, experiences, and they find them to be frightening and disturbing, and the counselors are there to help them through that. And that includes people who are uh, afflicted by poltergeist manifestations. Uh, so the work they do there is is very unusual because you don't really find it elsewhere. You don't find state-funded clinics uh, in other parts of the world that help people who experience the poltergeist. Um, you'd find more informal types of settings where people can talk about them. In the States, for example, uh, transpersonal psychologists in the States and Canada uh, certainly would be open to talking about uh, poltergeist events and helping people understand them. Um, and some parapsychologists, like at the Ryan Research Center in Durham, North Carolina, they've actively continued to investigate poltergeist cases and shown a lot of concern for the well-being of focus persons. Uh, John Cruth, who's the executive director of the Rhine, and an electrical engineer, William Joins, who had done a lot of research with William Roll, uh, a few years back they investigated a case involving a 10-year-old boy around whom a lot of electrical malfunctions were occurring uh, in very spontaneous, strange ways uh, at school and at home. And they found that um, they tried approaches of meditation to alleviate the anxiety of the little boy who was at the center of the case, and that actually seemed to help. It seemed to um, bring about less occurrences of this electrical sort of poltergeist type phenomenon and there's something to that and it very much follows um, the type of work they're doing in Germany so there's that work and then in Australia there's a researcher Paul Cropper who's been contributing highly valuable research unlike anything that's been done before and that he focuses on cases that occur outside of Europe and North America he seeks out poltergeist cases in all around the world, and he tracks them in the media and um, does a really great job at doing that. And he's traveled personally to a number of poltergeist cases in Vietnam, Turkey, and Malaysia uh, over the years, and come up with some really interesting observations on these modern cases that are, you know really fascinating and it shows that the poltergeist is something that's experienced around the globe so between those folks i you know i think they're 
the major people doing research into the poltergeist. And um, also, in you know, I myself, I am a historian, and there's a number of scholars in the humanities who are researching how people experience the paranormal, how they try to explain that, what kind of explanations do they come up with. And, and that adds a different approach to looking at the paranormal. It's not just observing uh, phenomena in action or looking at how people report it, but, you know, looking at the greater context of their lives and the cultural uh, influences that also determine how people explain these types of events. Sure. And you, you're, you're writing a book right now called Mischievous Forces. What can we expect from that book? It's, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, very much expanding from what I wrote in my dissertation. Um, I A book project is a very long-term one. It's not going to be uh, out for a while, for sure, because I'm letting my ideas from my PhD settle right now, and um, I'm taking a lot of the data and interviews and ideas that weren't in my dissertation, and I'm I'm letting them settle and, and I'm putting them together into this form. So, the this, the dissertation itself just followed the history of one idea, and that was that the poltergeist is like an, a psychosomatic, externalized force of some sort if someone is repressing how they really feel um, somehow an energy would come forth and create the spontaneous psychokinesis what parapsychologists call recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis RSPK so the dissertation was a, a history of that but in the book itself I want to look more at um, at what we were talking about earlier, what, what happens when people communicated with the poltergeist, how that would change our understanding of the nature of the poltergeist, and what kinds of uh, things can we learn from those cases in terms of, of approaching uh, the ongoing occurrence of these types of cases around the world, what might be helpful uh, in investigating those cases. So that's the kind of content I'm looking at in the book. And that's going to take a long time to delve into <laughs> yeah. everybody's uh, because if you're looking at their their long term history and their study of these individuals, mm -hmm. uh, I guess it's going to take a long time just to document all of this and see what actually happened to the the experiencers. Yeah, it's it's definitely a longer term project. Um, it, you know, it, it took uh, many, many years to do the doctoral research, and I mean that's that's a lot of research completed. So more, it's more about interviewing people now, uh, interviewing people who have experienced the poltergeist phenomenon. I've interviewed uh, about 20 people so far, and uh, through my doctoral research, so it's about picking that work up and and looking at some of the ideas that came out of my doctoral research and going back to the people who have written to me and and looking further at what they experienced and and possibly hearing from new people so so that type of work is time consuming uh but it i'm pretty excited about what the book will be down the road Excellent. and how do uh, people get in touch with you if they have an experience or if they want to make a comment or yeah attention to you I, I have a website, um, ChristopherLarson.com, and I'll spell that out. It's uh, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-L-A-U-R-S-O-N. 
S-E-N.com. So people can go to my website and contact me from there. And I'm, I do receive really interesting correspondence from people. Um, I find it very enlightening uh, what they have to say. So I always welcome it for sure. Well, I thank you very much, Christopher, for allowing me to interview you today. It's, you know, it's very important, I think, this kind of, because all we have to go on if we look at pop culture and what's available on the net, if we don't dig too deep, is poltergeist activity happens to adolescent children, and it's probably demonic in nature, and that's where our focus should be, right? Call a priest, everything's okay. And that's as far as, like, most people take it, and I'm so <laughs> glad to see that the study has progressed and there's actually a history behind the study that we can look at and say okay look at all this stuff that people have brought forward before that we typically ignored and we never even delved into it and now we can go forward with all this research and what you're doing what other people are doing and saying okay well let's examine this further in a different light absolutely and you know that's that's one of the great things about um doing this kind of work right now in in the scholarly field is there, there are a lot of scholars who are very open to the mystery of these things. They're not, they, they understand that historically it's been difficult to come up with answers. So how else can we look at um, all these unusual experiences that people have? And it's crucial to, to take seriously what it is to experience these types of things, whatever they may be, because they have, a definite impact on people's lives and they they impact culture you know we see that in the movies that you're talking about they they influence um ideas that are cultural and those ideas eventually sort of float away from how people actually experience things and it's sort of about bringing it back to what is the experience and how do people find that meaningful and, and what kind of what further clues can we find if we consider the meaningful aspects of those types of experiences? Exactly. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Christopher. Oh, it's my pleasure, John. I'm, I'm really glad to, uh, to have done this interview. I mean, we, we, I interviewed you many years ago about the Blue Coast Tunnel, so it's, <laughs> it's great go. to kind of go full circle. <laughs> I totally and... forgot about that one. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a whole other topic right there. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, so it's great to come full circle, and I hope we converse again sometime soon. <laughs>